And so Leonardo da Vinci, near the end of his life, dedicated himself for about two and a half years plus to paint what he saw was to be his masterpiece. And of course, you know that painting as the Lord's Supper. He was near the end. He was finishing the painting when he called in one of his most trusted friends, a friend, a lifetime friend who was very knowledgeable in the area of painting and art, so that his friend might give him some advice and some critique of the work before it was to be viewed by the public. And the friend immediately noticed the beautiful cup that was in Jesus' hand. Wow, he said, what, what beautiful detail. What a beautiful cup Jesus holds. Within minutes after the departure of his friend, Leonardo da Vinci painted the cup out of the picture. In the deterioration of the painting of the Lord's Supper before it was restored, historians noticed that you could begin to see the stem and a portion of the cup showing up that had been painted out, confirming the story. You see, Leonardo said the reason he painted out the cup because he wanted nothing to distract the eyes from the person of Jesus who was in the center of his painting. That's exactly what Paul is doing in the letter to the Colossians. There are teachers in Colossae that are trying to add to the gospel. They're trying to to demand of the Colossians that there's some other things that they need to know or some other things that they need to do besides, besides relying on the gospel and the finished work of Christ. And, and Paul is doing the same thing. He wants to obliterate that false teaching, to paint that completely out of the picture so we would only see Christ. So we're doing a series on the book of Colossians, and we're going to do this verse by verse. Now, one of the advantages of doing going through Scripture verse by verse is that it forces preachers to talk about things sometimes they don't really want to talk about. And that'll probably happen as we go through Colossians. But it'll give us a consistent view and an understanding from the perspective of Paul dealing with some issues in that time that are still relevant in our day as well, in regard to who Christ is and the Gospels. Now, I want to give you my, one of my favorite quotes from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Can you pop it up there? Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. So symbolically, every week, I'm taking off my shoes. Here's the reason we're doing this series. I want you, this indelibly imprinted in your mind and heart. Here's why we're doing this series. Because I believe wholeheartedly and fully in the vision and the mission of Willoughby Church in this community.
to live sent. To live out our vision and our mission in this community and beyond. But before we can do that, before we can put our shoes on and walk as Jesus wants us to walk, we need to take our shoes off in the presence of God and see and recognize who he really is. Now, the theme, the theme of Colossians, and I have borrowed a phrase from Tullian uh, Trevigian, uh, who down in Florida, the theme, put it up there with you, Jr. simply this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. I hope you get that. You see, to add anything to Jesus would be like, would be like me inheriting, let's say, all of Bill Gates's estate, $65 billion, it would be like me inheriting everything that Bill Gates has and then saying, oh, you know what? There's one more thing I need. I, I need this music stand. When you understand who Christ is, the value and the wealth and the majesty and the preeminence of Christ, everything else just looks like an old music stand. And why would you add to him? Why would you try to do anything to add to Christ? Jesus plus nothing, Paul says, equals everything. Now, we did last week, we did a brief overview. We won't go into that. It's on the podcast. So you can download that if you want. We talked about the design of Paul's letter, which is like the design of his other letters. He always begins with a doctrinal section, and then he follows that up with the practical implications. But the thing that we pointed out to you was in the doctrinal section, it is the vertical indicative. It is clearly stated that this is the finished work of Christ. This is what God has done for us. That's the vertical indicative. It is followed by the horizontal imperative. How we should then live based on the gospel and the work that Christ has already done in us. We'll see that as we begin to dig into the passage today. The doctrinal key we said was simply the phrase in Christ or in him, into him or with him. That is the, the key doctrinal phrase in the book of Colossians or in this letter. It really in all of Paul's letters. One commentator, I didn't go back and do my own count, but one commentator says that the phrase in Christ or in him or into him appears in Paul's letters 164 times. He wrote 13 letters 164 times. You think that's not a pretty predominant theme? There are 21 such phrases in the, the four chapters of Colossians. Do you get it? When you get and understand what it means to be in Christ, you're going to be farther down the road on what it means to live as a Christian. So that's the key, doctrinal key to the letter. And then the dimensions is to speak of the greatness and the majesty of Christ as the master over all creation, over the entire Cosmos is the Greek word there. The whole, the whole cosmos that he is preeminent, preeminent in all things. That's the dimensions of 
this little letter. Okay, so with that, let's dig into the text, okay? Verse 1. Now, verses 1 and 2, let me just set this up. Uh, Paul greets the Colossians, introduces himself, and he greets them. It's important that he do that. And then he's going to affirm them in, you know, and, and uh, express some thanksgiving for them. In other words, he's going to let them know, uh, I know what's going on with you. I know who you are. I know of your faith. Um, I, I'm, I've been informed. He's going to mention Epaphras. Why does he mention Epaphras? Because it was Epaphras that, that literally planted the church there in his hometown of Colossae. He was a disciple of Paul at Ephesus. And then he went down the road, it's about 100 miles, back home to Colossae. And he was the one who planted the church, believed to have planted the church in Heropolis and also in Laodicea, in the, this, this little tri-city area that's in the Lycus Valley. And so, so he's going to mention Epaphras because that would be one of the ways that would engender some trust with the Colossians. He's going to affirm them to build the relationship, mention Epaphras and Epaphras' ministry. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 1, he's going to give a brief description of his own calling and apostolic ministry before he ever begins the argument, the real body of the, of the, of the letter where he confronts the false teaching, the distractions, and the deception that's going on in Colossae. Does that make sense? There is a flow to it. So let's look at the greeting. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God and Father. Okay, we're going to talk about two things in these first eight verses. We're going to talk about the truth of the gospel and what it produces in the life of the Christian and through the life of the Christian, how it begins to manifest itself in the body of Christ, in the church. It's incumbent upon us to understand, you know, that is that, it, that as Christ works in us as individuals and draws us into community, that that the same work he's doing in us will be manifested, will be seen and reflected in what he's doing in the body. So the truth of the gospel, what it produces in the life of the Christian. The second thing we want to look at is the truth of the how the truth of the gospel is transmitted. Okay, so beginning here with what Paul says, he begins this letter with a simple statement uh, that he comes not in his own authority, but he does, in fact, say that he has authority because he is an apostle. He comes to the Colossians under the authority of Jesus Christ, and he says, by the will of God. Now, at this, in this period of history, we need to recognize here that at the, at the time of this writing, letters were signed, not at the end of the letter. Where were they signed? At the beginning. It makes sense. If you're going to take someone's correspondence seriously or even pay careful attention to it, then you want to know who it's coming from. Now, they didn't have the problem with junk mail back then. 
like we have. You know, because most of us get stuff we don't even open, right? We never even unseal the envelope. The unfortunate thing is now we have Devin, I have to put that in one of those, you know, shredders and stuff, you know, try to protect our identity. You know? But in that day and time, you know, if you, you, if the reason why you would identify yourself and sign the letter at the beginning was so that you could express not only who you were, but that you could have credibility for what you want to write in the letter. So Paul calls them to attention by, by greeting them by name. Now, Paul also does something else here. He, he introduces Timothy as his companion, doesn't he? Now, I want to just make a couple of observations about the first couple of verses. Paul never wastes words. He never wastes words. There's a purpose and intent behind every word choice that Paul makes. This was not just some standard formal greeting that you just leap over and get into the meat. It was not just the informal greeting that was customary for friendship or introduction. I would encourage you to take a closer look at every word. The fact is that... um, He does use some of the same words in this correspondence that he uses in other letters, other introductions or greetings. And that only adds weight to the fact that these were the frequent and substantive substantive themes of his writing and of his teaching. So I want you to take this very seriously. Paul never wastes words. Secondly, Paul never wastes an opportunity to affirm his companions. And his co-laborers. He mentions Timothy. Before he's done, he's going to, in verse 7, he's going to affirm Epaphras, his fellow worker. He's going to affirm Tychicus, who is the letter bearer. He's, there's a whole list in chapter 4 uh, of, of companions and co-workers that he will affirm. And the point is simply this, that Paul never worked alone. He lived and he worked in community. And he was always discipling, but he was always being encouraged and discipled by others. He was always linked up with someone. Focus on the Family a few years ago did a a survey of American pastors. And did you know that 70% of the pastors who who responded to the survey, said they don't have any close friends. 70% of guys in, in shepherding congregations. How unlike Paul is that? Do you get that? Now, I realize there's a lot of tension. You know what I'm saying? You know, I, you know when, when you're trying to be the leader of something, man, can you allow yourself to get too close? And I've wondered at times if maybe I've let it hang out a little too much. But the reality is, is that there are 
many people in this congregation that I trust. And there are many people in this congregation that I have learned from and been encouraged by. And Paul never wastes a word. Man, there's intent behind everything that he says. But he also never wastes an opportunity to affirm those that were around him and to appreciate those around him. When was the last time you appreciated some of those that God has put in your life specifically to help to affirm and to nurture and to encourage and to disciple you? Hey, be like Paul here. Be like Paul and take the opportunity, every opportunity you get to affirm those who are around you. Now, Paul calls himself an apostle. And that word literally just translates, translates the idea of a sent one, one who is sent, one who is given a mission. And interestingly enough, at the day and time in which Paul wrote this, there actually were ships, nautical ships that were called apostle ships. Why? Because they were sent to deliver goods, to carry goods from one location to another. They were not cruise ships. They didn't have big buffet lines. I'm saying that because I'm hoping that, you know, that Daryl and Tom Tynes and some of those guys that left on a cruise yesterday will listen to the podcast. Bill Barr and Julie and yeah, there, there's a, some of them out there. They're on the cruise ship. Apostle ships weren't cruise ships. They weren't for entertainment. They, they didn't have, they didn't have a lot of fun activities and, and a big buffet line. They, they were simply ships that had a mission and that was to deliver the goods, to take precious cargo from one port to the next. And so when Paul uses this idea that he is an apostle, that he has been given something, a precious cargo that he's to carry wherever that manifest is directed. Does that make sense? And that's what he's seeking to be faithful to do. Under not his authority, but the authority of Christ. Because he says, it's not by my will. It wasn't by my design. And if you know Paul's story, you know that's true. He was going in a totally opposite direction, making a name for himself in Judaism as a Pharisee, as a leader, and as a, as, as a, a primary pros, you know, prosecutor of Christians when he encountered God on the Damascus Road. And he saw God because an apostle is an eyewitness. And he says, I was an eyewitness because I was confronted, you know, on this Damascus Road by great light. And I saw and I heard and I was called into service. I was given an apostleship. I was given precious, the precious word, the precious cargo of the gospel to carry from place to place. Now you'll notice in verse 2, he says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul doesn't just throw out a blanket statement there to the church at Colossae. He describes the recipients of the letter with three terms here. He calls them saints. And the word comes from this idea of being holy, being set apart. Hagios, set apart for God and to God. 
He calls them faithful. Faithful. And he calls them brothers in relationship as part of God's family. Now, when I read that, I felt compelled to make a distinction. I don't think he's speaking to church attenders or to casual leaders here. I think what he's trying to get, I think the group of people that he's trying to get the attention of are those in this small community who have become become identified with Christ and who are now a part of his church. You see, every weekend across this country and probably every country, there are folks who are in attendance who don't really know experientially what the words that Paul uses mean. They don't know what it means to be wholly set apart. They don't know what it means to be faithful, to be consistent, to be persevering. They don't know what it means to really be brothers and sisters and in relationship and community. So Paul's not addressing just church attenders. He's talking to a group of people whose ears will perk up because they've become identified with Christ and recipients of the gospel. And he's saying to them, church, listen to my words. He's exploring with them a bond that's created by having a relationship with Christ. And so he says to them, grace and peace from God our Father. Now, that's not just the typical greeting. Do you hear the gospel in that? Grace and peace. The best way to think of that, folks, would be to think of it this way. Grace is the root and peace is the fruit. Grace is the root, the root system, and peace is the fruit. Now, when I talk to people who come to faith in Christ, who come to that place where they recognize and they, 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 they believe in Jesus and they cross over the line and they, and they put their faith and trust in Jesus. You know, one of the first things I hear them talk about is how relieved they are, how that peace just begins to flood the heart and the soul. That sense of well-being and contentment and that's a part of that experiential knowledge of God. So grace is the root and peace is the fruit for us. Now, grace is what? Unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. Acceptance, accepting us just as we are, right where we are. We'll see in a minute. He doesn't just leave us there, but grace is is receiving us unconditionally. Mercy, it is said, is when we don't get what we deserve. Grace is when we we get what we don't deserve. We get blessed. We get bounty. We get goodness from God that we don't deserve I mean, you got to ask yourself folks when you go back and you read the gospels the, the narratives of jesus life you and you begin to dig down in there you know here comes the gospel 
being spoken in a world where there's a religious context of legalism, of outward ritual and rule keeping. And I mean, that's the, that was the, that was the structure and the culture of religion at the time. And here comes one speaking of unconditional love and acceptance from God. Here comes from top down God into that context, beginning to love and accept people. And who was it that were attracted to Jesus? I mean, I mean, who literally came out of the woodwork to want to hang out with Jesus? <laughs> yeah, the sinners, the outcasts, the, you, you know, what in that culture would have been perceived as the lower life forms, right? They flock around him. I wonder sometimes if our ministry doesn't attract the same kind of people that Jesus attracted, is it because we've somehow altered the message? We're obscuring the gospel in some way. We're not communicating it very well. Ouch. See, because grace doesn't put conditions on acceptance. It, it receives people where they are. And the peace that that is spoken of, the arena is the Greek word. Now, shalom is the word that we that is commonly commonly heard the hebrew the peace of god it conveys this idea that we are made complete and whole that things in our life are brought into harmony that grace is the root but the fruit is that things begin to become into harmony in our lives and there's a sense of wholeness and completeness that matters are settled with us and there is serenity and tranquility and confidence and assurance that's the fruit of grace. I think the first time Paul really saw that in the book of Acts, when he saw Stephen stoned. Do you remember? Paul was there kind of directing the rage of the crowd to pick up stones. And to bury Stephen in stones. And, and Luke records in Acts that as, as Stephen died, he looked up into heaven and he saw his Lord standing at God's right hand and he died peacefully. I think that just bugged the life out of Paul. I think that kept him awake at night. I think that plowed his heart so that when he hit the road to Damascus, he was ready. Grace and peace. Grace is the root. Peace is the fruit. Colossians 2, the next chapter, verse 6 and 7. I love the Living Bible translation. It says it this way. And now just as you trusted Christ to save you, trust him too for each day's problems and live in vital union with him. 
Let your roots grow down deep into him. Grace is the roots. See that you so that you draw up nourishment from him, that you you continue, you go on growing strong in the truth that you've been taught. That's a beautiful idea. You see, for Paul, grace, grace is not just the thing we need at the point of conversion. It's what we need to continue the journey and the walk. Anybody in here sin free? Want to raise your hand? I don't sin anymore. Guess what? You need grace. You still need grace. It's not only how we come into relationship with him and experience forgiveness and and the peace of God in our lives, but it's the way we continue in him. I like what what one I wish I could remember where I heard this, but I wrote it down. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is. It is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel applies not only to the beginning, but to everything that goes on in our lives. So grace is the root system. Peace is the first fruit. Okay, but then Paul goes on. Okay, Um, we're going to have to do this quickly, but. When people go church shopping, what do they look for? In this day and time. Oh, yeah, man, a a program. Okay, okay, great children's ministry. Uh, Oh, you know, uh, youth group. Oh, do they have a great band? You know, like Willow Band? I mean... They have a great band. You know, is the worship good? You know, is the is the is, is the preacher interesting enough to kind of hold our attention for a little while? Um, you know, there's that. Whole, ooh, is it state of the art? I mean, do they have the whole backup, you know, with the video and the, the lights and the sound? And the, I mean, you know, when people go out there church shopping that is, what do they look for? You can make a list of all those kind of things that that are the most common things that you hear people talk about. What do you think Paul was looking for? Substance. You're on it. You know, basically, basically, when you look at Paul's writings, he's looking for three things. It's the triad that shows up here in, in the next verses. Beginning with verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Faith, hope, and love? It should, because that's Paul's triad. See, when Paul was looking for for God's activity in a church. He wasn't looking for relevant teaching. He wasn't looking for a band that can really smoke. And he wasn't looking for, did they have all the right kind of programs? He's looking to, do they have faith? Do they have love? And do they have hope? Is their faith and their love anchored in real hope? Interesting, isn't it? Now, we don't have a lot of time to unpack that. But what I want to do is I want to reinforce that idea and get you to think. First Corinthians thirteen thirteen, And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. First Thessalonians chapter 1, 
introduction, greeting of that letter. We give thanks to God always for you all consistently or constantly mentioning, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your st- the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just there, but it's in the writings of Peter and also the writings of the, he- the author of the Hebrew mentions it, chapter 10 of Hebrews. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he has who for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as the habit of some is. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Faith, hope, and love. And so you need to unpack that a little bit. Now faith is just simply, it's, it's not an intellectual set of, pro, you know, of propositions. Of just saying, yeah, I, I believe that. You know, it's more easily demonstrated with a very, in a very simple way with something like this stool. You recognize what this is. It's a stool, right? It has four legs. It looks like it might support me. How would I know that it's going to support me? I would have to sit on it, you know? Now, I could do, like some, go to, like, to, go to theological school, get a master's degree in interior design so that I would be able to, to describe fully, you know, what, the features of and construction of a, a helpful place to sit would be, but I still haven't sat down, right? Faith is simply not only believing in the truth, but it is faith is when we rest completely on our lives on that truth. Now, I know some Christians that do this. Yeah, I believe. But if you watch them long enough, you notice there's some tension there. I mean, they're, they're, they're not fully resting in it. <laughs> they're just kind of testing it out. See, what, what Paul is saying in affirmation to the Colossians is that I, you know, we, Epaphras has made it clear to me that you rest your lives on the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. You're resting on him. You haven't just walked around it and looked at it and questioned it and doubted it and described it and you know, tried to understand it. But now you've come to believe it in such a way that you rest your life on the truth of the gospel. And you are loving each other. And the root word is agape. God's kind of love. We've stated before that this is not a human love. It's a supernatural love. It is shed abroad, according to Paul, Romans chapter 5. It is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. And the agape, the love of God that is expressed in the community that Paul is describing, he says, is for all of the brethren. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't pick and choose who it's going to hang out with, who it's going to love. Are you with me? Paul is saying, let me affirm, you, you, are, you are resting 
You're in, you're, you're resting your faith and trusting in God. And I, and we see the outward evidence, the visible evidence of the love that you have, because love is not sentimental. It's not just emotional. It's not feeling. The agape is love that is put into action. It is love that does. That focuses on the needs and the and and the the struggles of others to affirm and come alongside in practical kind of ways. And he says, and we see your hope that is anchored in heaven. Now, if you look closely there, he says to the Colossians that what is, you know, what is happening is that your faith has blossomed into love because it is anchored in hope that is in heaven. And that's an interesting phrase. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if my hope is really anchored in heaven, you know what happens? That's going to make me a lot more generous down here. I'm not going to be so oriented about things (laughs) and seeking security from material things. And when I'm not doing that, I become more generous. And if I'm more generous, what happens? You get loved more because I'm not thinking about myself all the time. My security, because my security is where it's anchored in heaven and not here. And and if my security is anchored in heaven and, and, and not here, and I'm secure in that way, then I'm not thinking about myself all the time to begin with, right? Because my focus is on Christ and on heaven and being seated with him in heavenly places. And I, it's natural. Why would you not become more loving and more attentive? If your hope truly is anchored there. Okay. I, I just I have to point out one more thing before I let you go today. And that is. I, I want you to understand that triad. When when Paul was looking. For church. When, when Paul was looking for evidence that God is really real. He's looking for those three things. W- wouldn't it be cool for Wilbin Church to be known. Not because we have a great band, not because we, you know, we're, you know, we think we're more relevant or we've got a great children's program, which we do. We've got all those things. But wouldn't it be cool to be known as a church that really has faith? That really trusts God? That really does love one another? And that really hopes? Is a hope that's anchored in heaven. And the interesting thing that Paul says here, you'll notice he never congratulates the Colossian church. He thanks God. And at the end of verse 8, he says, you know, he says, uh, Epaphras has has made known to us your love in the spirit. So he attributes the love they have to the spirit. So what he's saying is, guys, the the visible evidence, what we see is it, it doesn't go back to you. It goes back to what God is doing. It goes back to the vertical indicative. What the Spirit of God is doing in, in your lives. And then the, the last thing I want to mention is, the, is uh, 
How is the truth of the gospel transmitted? Look at the at verses 6, 7, and 8. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and indeed to the whole world. You see how it's spreading? It is bearing fruit and it is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, your beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he's made known to us your love in the spirit. How is it transmitted? Well, Epaphras had to carry it down the road. It's carried by one humble believer to the next person. That's how it gets transmitted. There's, there's not a more effective way for that to happen. Not in Paul's day, nor in our day. It's, The gospel is transmitted when one humble believer who comes to rest their faith in Christ and begins to grow in love and concern about others that are around them and has their hope anchored in heaven and their expectation that God is in control of all things. And they go down the road and share it with somebody else. You see, Epaphras was not an apostle. There's no record that he ever had any formal training. He certainly didn't go to seminary. He just was discipled. He just was taught the gospel, the simple message. And we don't know, seriously, we don't know how long he sat under Paul. Probably until he just couldn't stand it because his own people needed to hear the gospel. And so he he made that 100-mile trek back to his home region, the Lycus Valley, so that he could share the gospel. And Paul says some wonderful things about Epaphras. He says, you learned the gospel. from So it means that he understood enough of it that he could teach it. He said Epaphras was beloved. Agapeu, he was, he's, he was beloved. He understood he was loved. He was a fellow servant. Sundulas, the word for slave. He was a fellow slave, servant. A faithful minister. And the word there is diakonoi, our word for deacon. On your behalf, hooper human, over you. He was, he was, you know, he was given a charge for you. And in verse 8, and he was always bragging about you guys. See, he was the one who came back and made known to us that the Spirit of God had stirred up love in your heart. And so the gospel, the truth of the gospel, produces in us, as we sink our roots into it, peace. That's the first fruit. And then there's this cluster of fruit that Paul always looks for, faith, hope, and love. That's what God produces. Now, you see, those are visible fruits. And so any one of us in this room could look at our lives and we could go, Is God doing that in me? Am I connected with him? Because if I'm connected with him and the gospel, then he's going to begin to produce that in me. That's what the truth of the gospel produces. And it is transmitted as one humble believer. Someone like you or me goes down the road and shares it. 
out of love with someone else, just like Epaphras. That's the beginning of the Colossian letter. Let's pray. Our Father, we... uh, We do desire to see your work amongst us as your church. And we recognize that that begins in us as individual believers who are willing to rest our faith on you. To trust you. to believe you and then begin to sink our roots in in the grace and continue in grace that you have so incredibly supplied through the finished work of your son on the cross so help us help us to trust help us to love help us Holy Spirit to hope and help us to encourage and spread the good news of what you've done in our lives to someone else is our prayer in Jesus name